one of the challenges we have right now is that there's 50 companies that make a profit from dividing us. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jonathan Swift. Vision is the art of seeing what is invisible to others. My guest today, Seth Godin, is a true visionary thinker and a Renaissance man. He's the author of 21 international bestsellers that have changed the way people think about work, and his books have been translated into 38 languages. Godin also writes one of the most popular marketing blogs in the world at seth.blog, and two of his TED Talks are among the most popular of all time. He's a serial entrepreneur, founder of Alt-MBA, the social media pioneer Squidoo and Yoyodyne, one of the first internet companies. So Seth, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you. So you have an incredible breadth of, of interest and hobbies. <laughs> uh, shows up in the diversity of your work and I think some of the questions I'll ask today. I, I was curious, like, where did that intellectual curiosity come from? Were you, were you always a curious kid growing up or was that something that was sort of fostered? I think the real question is, why doesn't everyone like that? Everyone, when they were three years old, told a joke at least once, painted a watercolor that was or finger painting that someone wanted to look at. It gets burned out of us on purpose by the industrial regime that wants us to comply and fit in and be part of something. And then we look at somebody who didn't take on and we say, how? What magical thing happened to you? And I think it's more what didn't happen to me because I it just didn't work on me. The shut up and drive thing, will this be on the test? You know? I had great supportive parents, but mostly I just did what kids do and I kept doing it. So your parents supported your creativity? Yeah, they. Um, both my parents were very special people. I miss them every day. But I think it's a trap because there are plenty of people who didn't have supportive parents who also grew up to be intellectually curious. And I love the fact that I came out okay in the parent lottery, but I don't think that we can look at where we are in the world and say, there is no hope for me because I don't have a talent or I didn't get pushed to do that when I was seven. My high school English teacher wrote in my yearbook that I was the bane of her existence and I would never amount to anything. <laughs> and I took one English class in college. So if I can write books, anyone who can speak can write books. Do you keep that somewhere? Is that is that a motivator? <laughs> I actually, I in order to close the, the door on that, I dedicated a book to her, my, like my 32nd book is a book package I dedicated to her and her husband and I mailed them a copy. They thought it was hysterical. So I heard you talking recently uh, in an interview about how you had, you dismissed the World Wide Web as it was originally called when when it was first showed to you. Uh, but then you kind of went on to become one of its early pioneers. So like, what changed? And is that a good example of kind of turning around and how you turn around an early mistake or failure? Yeah, I use that as an example to help people understand um, what we need to do because we don't make stuff, we make decisions. Yeah. And it's easy to avoid a decision and just ask your boss to tell you what to do. Or you can be in the business of making decisions. So I started one of the very first internet companies. We invented email marketing, not spam, but the good kind. And uh, Mark Hurst, who was one of my first employees, showed me this thing called the World Wide Web. That was when our biggest clients were AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy. And I looked at it and I said, well, it's slow and it's clunky and there is no business model. It's never going to work. 
And that one sentence cost us, you know, 20, 30, 40 billion dollars. Uh, because we just got back to doing what we were doing, which was working with AOL. It took me probably a hundred, two hundred days to realize I was wrong. And then I listened to the sound of me changing my mind. That sound is a sound that most of us are afraid of. But I heard that sound and I decided I liked that sound. So I try to find moments where I can change my mind. And when I do, sometimes I write a book about it. That's what the Song of Significance is about, changing our mind about how industry works, changing our mind about what work is like. And I am just hooked on the energy and humanity that comes from seeing something new. So marketing's been, as you just said, obviously a huge part of your career expertise. And you know, you've said multiple times before that marketing is about telling stories that people want to be a part of a tribe. Um, they want to have a product or a thought leader as part of kind of that identity. Do you think the uh, explosion or weaponization of this type of marketing has kind of contributed to a lot of the tribalism that we see today in our in our culture? There is no doubt in my mind that the best intention part of much of my work has been misused and, to use your term, weaponized. That there are people who are anti-democratic bullies who I have talked to who said, thank you so much for writing this book or that book because it gave us a roadmap. And I regret that. And the fact is, if I hadn't written the book, they probably would still be uh, selfish. Um, The thing is that tribes have a long, long history in humanity. That's, if you watch 2001, what led us to become humans. And we've been fighting ever since. So what the book argues is not that tribes are always good, but that each of us could lead a group of people who seek to be connected. And it's on us to make things better. And one of the challenges we have right now is that there's 50 companies that make a profit from dividing us and from putting us into a state of massive anxiety. It's hard to counter that, but we have the tools to counter it. We can organize 10 or 20 or 30 people because most human beings think and say that the people they know personally are okay. It's those other people that are bad. Right. So if we can just figure out how to network across artificially created divisions, we may have a chance to weave things together before it's too late. But do you think that this, this prehistoric, uh, the, the willingness to disagree with your tribe is tied a little bit to this prehistoric, if I get thrown out of my tribe, I'm I'm in real trouble? So there's two parts going on here. The first part is, There's no doubt that culture is driven by the fact that humans in a pack are safer than humans that aren't in a pack. That's why we're in packs in the first place, someone to be the night watchman while we sleep. That doesn't explain why one tribe needs to fight with the other. That is caused by the scarcity of geography. And if one tribe has a a mammoth that looks good to eat or a, a field that looks good to farm, the other tribe might want to take it. And the techno-optimists, and I was among them 25 years ago, said, well, the internet has no geography. It can keep getting as big as we want it to be. So let's figure out how to step past the scarcity mindset of geography and create an abundance possibility mindset. And unfortunately, investors were drawn to people who said, nah, I'd rather just burn it all down and we can make a profit while we're doing it. Yeah, the, the best of intentions. 
Another thing I heard you say recently, well, a few times, simple but profound, but, uh, and I'm curious your take on this because of where we are in the cycle right now, but uh, sell something people want to buy, right? <laughs> it seems like good advice. Well, I, I read an article last week that I thought was pretty interesting. It was talking about these large direct-to-consumer companies, right? The ones who all kind of went in on permission marketing. And co- this is, you know, before that, everyone was wholesale and no one knew their customers. Uh, and and the average stock was about down 98%, and, and they're still wildly unprofitable. And mm-hmm. the author hypothesized that that the leaders in these companies over a decade probably have just not developed the DNA of how to make money, and it's not just a switch that you can flip. And so if I think about like grocery delivery for a minute, and I was thinking about your comment, you know, customers might love it if it's a 10% markup, but at a 40% markup where, where you can make a business out of it, they're not interested. So... Cheap capitals cause some of the suspension of disbelief, but I think we've also chained a, trained a generation of, of marketers and leaders who don't know how to figure out product market fit. So I'm, I'm curious your take on that. Do you think profit's an important part of kind of understanding if you have something that customers value? Okay, so let's integrate two questions you've just asked. Sell something people want to buy. What is the something? The something is not the stuff. They have enough stuff. The customers for like the dog food people. These people already have dog food in their house. They don't have a dog food problem. So what are they selling? They're selling a story about dog food. That's what people are buying. So when we think about the DTC cratering, it happened because the investors asked for it. And what the companies did who were pushed to go fast is they bought a lot of social media ads. Social media ads, if they're sold at auction, make $0 for the buyer and all the money for the seller. So that was mistake number one, is they thought that they could goose revenue by giving money to Mark. Auctions do not benefit buyers for anyone want to look at historical, yeah. Correct. And then problem number two is the stuff they were selling wasn't worth talking about. And the secret of marketing is not just selling things that people want to buy, but delivering something to them that is so remarkable, the word remarkable means worth making a remark about, that they tell the others. When that happens, you don't have to pay Facebook. So there's the lead. So there's a DTC company that makes a tiny little magnetic triangle-shaped thing for dovetail makers, which is a kind of woodworking trick. And how did I find out about it? I didn't find out about it because there were a bunch of paid-for ads on my web browsing history. It's because someone who used it made a YouTube video about how cool it was. And so I bought one. My guess is this guy has never raised a dollar in VC and he makes a profit every day because he made something people like me wanted to buy. And he did it in a way that made others tell people like me about it. And that is what marketing is. Marketing is not how big is your valuation? How much did you raise? And how much money did you give Facebook to get big fast? Because no, that's not at all what I've been writing about. Also seems that more companies die from indigestion than starvation, right? right these <laughs> days, particularly when it comes to marketing. Well, you don't hear about the starving ones. <laughs> True. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. 
The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So you mentioned uh, education system before. I know this is something uh, I think you're passionate about. I think we share similar philosophies on, I think particularly when you think about, you know, a lot of the people I have on this podcast are well-known business leaders and entrepreneurs. And I think they feel that they were misfits in the education, you know, sit down, color in the lines, follow the thing. So I, you mentioned that, you know, rather than teaching kids to be perfect industrial cogs, we should be teaching them how to lead, how to solve complex problems. I think people know the problem. How do we reorient schooling around these outcomes and towards, particularly in the world of chat GPT, like around things that are going to be useful for humans to do? I actually don't think people know the problem. I think if you go to the typical angry parents meeting, if you look at who's pulling their kids out of school, they are saying it's not rigorous enough. The test scores aren't high enough. You're not pushing these kids to fit into our, you know, Calvinistic industrial mindset of what will get us the sticker on the back of our car. Yeah. There's a, a fancy private school in New York that had one rule, can't say you can't play, and didn't teach the kids to sit down and read. They created the conditions for the kids to figure that out. And by the time the kids are eight or nine years old, all these rich parents are pulling their kids out when they've completely missed the point. And what I am hoping people will begin to do is simply ask what school is for. You quoted my answer, which is teaching kids to lead and solve interesting problems, which means you would never, ever assign a 12-year-old to write an essay to prove that they read a book. You would instead say, Here's how ChatGPT works. Now show me you can use ChatGPT to solve an interesting problem. Because looking something up and tell me what year the War of 1812 was, we don't need anyone to do that. Because <laughs> Wikipedia already knows the answer. And one of the structural things really seems to be, I'm just amazed at this complete you know, lack of, it's okay to fail. Like There are kids out there who believe that if they get one be in a class that they don't care about and will never take again, that their chance of going to elite college in their life is is ruined. What 
the stakes are low. Why can't we teach anyone to fail when the stakes are low so that when they enter the real world and there really is some failure and mom and dad can't curate the path, that they're not ending up in the therapist's uh, office, you know, a few weeks later? Well, kids on their own have no trouble failing. It's yeah. when the parents are around that they have trouble failing. And I've spent 40 years helping to run a summer camp in Canada, and I can testify with firsthand knowledge that it takes about a week to get them out of the old mindset. And the hard work here is to help parents understand that college stickers are pretty much statistically a scam. And organizing your life to gain the status, to gain that sticker for your kid does not show that you're a good parent. It shows that you're a lazy parent who is willing to put in effort and money to get a sticker. <laughs> and if you really want happy, successful children, you will get back to what makes someone happy and successful. And it turns out it's not getting straight A's and then getting into Yale Law School. The people who went to Yale Law School and are now in their 12th year at Skadden Arps are not happy. Yeah, they might have money, but they might be pretty miserable. So I understand why the private schools would respond. You know, you're paying that amount of money the year. They respond what the parents do. I'm more interested in how the public schools have all sort of... It's the same, but it's, same just, thing. it's, even, yeah. it's even harder for a public school yeah. because the public school has to say anyone who pays taxes can send their kids here and anyone who wants to be loud can speak up. And when someone like me shows up and says... Why are there so many tests? Why is there so much rigor? Why aren't you focusing more on X, Y, or Z? The other parents look at me like I'm crazy. You know, so I produced the fourth grade musical and it's still talked about 20 years later. It was a magnificent event. It was the Wizard of Oz. And the way I did it was there were four Dorothys, four Tin Men, four Scarecrow, et cetera. So I had more than 20 stars. And as the musical unfolded, different people would come out in the Dorothy costume. So they were, I got 20 kids to be the star. There were no tryouts. Anyone who wanted to be in it could be in it because we don't have a Dorothy shortage. We're not looking for who can sing a high C the best. It's no scarcity of Dorothy's. <laughs> right. We want to create the conditions for kids to imagine that they can be part of a troop and make something happen. And some people look at that experience and say, you're teaching kids the wrong thing, that you're giving everyone a trophy, right? When all the facts are very clear that pushing, pushing, pushing kids to do, say, more competitive sports in high school does not lead to even better sports outcome in the in the major leagues, right? It seems to lead to them not liking the sport by the time they're 17 years old, from what I've seen. Right, Exactly. My, my kids play soccer uh, and, you know, a lot of this academy soccer stuff at 12 years old, they're playing mm -hmm. five, seven times a week and can't play any other sports. Right. What's that for? What are we teaching people? And so if you're a public school administrator, you have to listen to that. If you're a public school administrator, you look at that woman who lost her job for showing a piece of art in class, right? You look at what happens when teachers actually try to teach. So the the last thing I'll say about this is, the first teacher's college in the United States was in Massachusetts, and it was called the normal school. The reason it was called the normal school is they were teaching teachers to teach kids to be normal. And what did that involve? Well, it involved, you know, involved hitting them and, and primers and reciting things in unison because the factory owners were paying for the whole thing. And they said, we want kids at the age of 14 to come here and do what we tell them to.
So how would you, if you were advising parents or schools, because I think one of the things, you know, you've seen the same stats around how the valedictorians underperform, you know, in life because it's hard to be that good at everything unless maybe you're not doing it for the right reasons. I have to assume that like poetry probably wasn't Elon Musk's thing, just like, you know, science might not have been Beethoven's thing. Like, I, I understand the need to be exposed to a lot of things as you're as you're learning. But I, I think like if you get to be in something and you realize you hate it and just not passionate about it, you should be able to go on and do something else. Like how how do you think about that? That's the problem I have is like I, I understand we don't want kids to super specialize, but like we all have geniuses and we all have things that we are just naturally better at and more interested at. Oh, there's so many ways to dissect this. The first thing I'll say is no school should let a bully graduate. And he is not a hero. He's a problem. But setting that aside, Bach and Beethoven were both really into math. And arithmetic is not the same as math. And doing well on an arithmetic test or getting a B in arithmetic says nothing about whether you're into math or not. A student who is very visually oriented can learn an enormous amount of geography, of history, of mathematics, if the conditions are created for them to bring their special joy to whatever arena it is in. And so the question is flawed by beginning with getting a B in it or a C in it or an F in it. Because will this be on the test? That is a false proxy. Right. Tests do not actually measure any sort of learning. They measure compliance. Did you guess properly about what the teacher wanted you to say back to them? And every kid is homeschooled from three o'clock in the afternoon on. And for kids who have been victims of class division or caste or anything else, unfortunately, they don't have the same kind of homeschooling in the afternoon that other kids can have. And we should take a deep breath and say, now that we can use the internet to teach any sort of content that could be imagined, and now that chat GPT can show up at any moment that we ask it to and instruct someone who's interested in learning about what they want to learn, the main job of schools are one, to create a culture of kindness and connection, and two, to encourage kids to want to learn something. Yeah. If you do those two things, we won't be dumb. But we're dumb now because we're not doing those two things. I always tell my kids that uh, I don't know any adult who takes tests for a living as <laughs> part of their profession. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the question is, what do you say to your kid when they come home with a less than good grade? The question is, what is the modeling behavior yeah. of what they think their parents do to make them feel successful? Because even if your parents are entrepreneurs, they might mention around the table, they closed a deal, they got a big paycheck. It still feels like the one-way hierarchy of A, B, C, D, E. And when we start saying to kids, until you bring home a C, I'm going to be really disappointed because I need to see what you do when you fail. They're not going to feel good when they get a C. <laughs> and if they do get a C, the question is not, what are you going to do to bring it up? The question is, what did you learn from this process about getting a C? What is it in the system that led this to occur? Can you see the systems at work here? Because we can teach kids to see systems from a very early age. We can teach them to be suspicious of the provenance of something they read online. We can teach them to reach out to other people and help them that the best way for a C student to get better is to tutor somebody else. I, I actually had that discussion with one of my children. You know, I was totally surprised I got an, an A in this class. And I said, you know what? 
I've had this discussion with you a hundred times. That is not a surprise to me. And I'm not, you know, I'd be more surprised if you got a C and, and I'd like to see how you'd handle it. So <laughs> it was a total opposite discussion. I think that most people would have. Well, I, let, let's dig into your new book, which I've been busy reading the, uh, the last week, The Songs of Significance, which releases today. So the book is framed by the concept of three songs, songs of increase, songs of safety, and songs of significance, uh, which also gave it its title. This is a little bit of a different structure than some of your past writing. What what sort of led you to this framing approach? Well, this one's really personal and urgent. For the first time in my career, the publisher moved up the pub date by six mm. months. Yeah, that never happens. Never happens. Everyone I know, everyone you know, is grappling with the yeah. end of the industrial age and this revolution of how we are going to show up with and for each other to create the next generation of value for people. And a lot of people in power, a lot of billionaires are acting very badly. Just a few weeks ago, former Amazon exec who took over Lyft ordered all the people in HQ back to work. Well, that's a failure on Risher's part because there's never going to be another Amazon. There will never be another company with 100,000 plus people in it where they're all ordered into HQ to be surveilled, to be measured, and to be watched. And we can learn a lot instead from what Matt has done at Automatic, 2,000 people working distributed in a reading and writing culture with no email and very few meetings. Oh, they power 40% of the internet. How'd they yeah. do that? Well, they're related. And so the song of increase is something I learned from Jacqueline Freeman. It's about feral bees. And it's a wondrous sound and a wondrous story. But after the bees leave the hive, 15,000 of them in 10 minutes. They swarm to a tree nearby, 100 feet away, and they form a tight ball. And they have to do that because if their body temperature of the colony goes below 98 degrees, they will um, enter a torpor and die. And now they only have three days to find a new place to live, or if it rains, maybe less. And that's the song of safety. And that's what so many of us are living post-pandemic, all the trauma in our society, all the amplification of division, we're just hunkering down, waiting to die. And what I wanted to speak up about is that we can sing the song of significance instead. And when I asked 10,000 people in 90 countries, what's the best job they ever had? Everyone had an answer. I have not met anyone who didn't know what the best job they ever had was. And I said, well, what's it like? And it turns out almost everyone picks the same things. Not the things the boss picks. The boss thinks, I got paid a lot. I didn't get fired. It was a good job. Those are the two things they play with. That's not what people want. People want to do work they're proud of. They want to accomplish more than they thought they could. They want to connect to other people. These sorts of things, we forget to teach in school, and we forget to create the conditions for it work. But now that computers and robots and outsourcing can do all the jobs you can write down, the only jobs that are left are the jobs of making decisions and creating the next frontier. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites 
is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, you talk a lot about the engagement crisis. I think the stat I saw was that Gallup, 32% of employees are engaged uh, last year, which is actually down from the year before. But you talked about how managers just, they actually ignore all the popular advice on how to improve engagement. If they're struggling with engagement and there's people saying, here's how you do it, why are they ignoring it? What, What should they be doing? Okay, so managers are not leaders and leaders are not managers. Sometimes they're the same person, but they're wearing different hats. Usually they're not. Managers usually have bosses and managers are just trying to please their boss. It's power all the way down. Who do I have authority over? Who can I control? Who can I tell what to do? So when you say to a boss, here's this other way to think, what they say is, you mean if I put jelly beans in the break room and ask people to vote on the logo, we'll be fine? Because they want to create the illusion of significance. We'll give them a flu shot at their desk. Exactly. (laughs) And... Leaders understand it's all voluntary. That it used to be if you worked in the company town, you had no choice about where to work. Now your work is voluntary. You could leave and do it somewhere else. Since we are voluntarily showing up, leaders have to make the case for why it's worth showing up here to get to there. Where's the liminal space between here and there? How will we make a change we are proud of happen? And they're stuck. Managers are stuck because they just want to tell people what to do, because they're industrialists. And industrialism worked so well for 120 years, it made us all rich. And so we think that's what's in charge. But here it is, it's going away, right? You don't have any Black & Decker appliances in your home anymore. Where'd they go? Well, the fact that Black & Decker, General Electric, whoever, was good at churning out a fairly reliable blender doesn't matter anymore, because I can get one of those on Amazon for $9. So what are you going to do instead to create value? I'm curious, like what what role do employees have to play uh, in engagement? I, I was on a, a panel a year ago, and everyone went around. They said, "What do you think the trend is for the next year?" And I said, "I think people are really focused on flexibility." And and the person who went last said, "I think people want to work where they want, on what they want, and on how they want." But there seems to be this dichotomy where a lot of employees and and look, we're fully remote, and and I'm all about flexibility. But they're saying, "I just I want to do what I want, where I want, how and I want." But but they're also like lonelier than ever mm-hmm. and, and and all this other stuff. And there are trade-offs to being part of a team. Um, so from the employee side, like how do we get people to think themselves more of a team and under, you know, then this sort of individual contributor 
kind of mercenary mindset, which, cause we have this whole gig economy. And I think mm-hmm. this goes hand in hand. Like if you can't figure out why people are going to want come work at your team, then they'll just go be a mercenary in the gig economy. Right. So I think it's a natural response to decades of broken promises, broken promises about equity and inclusion broken promises about getting paid fairly broken promises about layoffs. And so workers who say, I just want to do what I want when I want are saying, that's my second choice. My first choice is to be part of something that I care about, but you refuse to do that. Hmm. You know, I went a couple of weeks ago to hear a local symphony orchestra play, 100% volunteer. Every person in the orchestra puts in money to pay the conductor. Those people practice their clarinet and their oboe on their own, but not one of them bristled at the invitation to come be part of the performance. And the performance was the highlight of their year. This thing they're doing that they want to do involves lots of work that they don't feel like playing scales over and over and over again. People are eager to work hard if you give them meaning in return. But if you work at the Marriott and I give you a script and you're in trouble, if you say something other than the words that I wrote down on the piece of paper, where is the meaning in that? So what we forgot to do as industrialists, um, semi-including myself, but not really, because I've been fighting this for a long time, is create a place that people will voluntarily want to be part of a team that makes a difference. And we see these teams are all over, right? My friend Nathan Winograd, who invented the no-kill animal shelter movement, has thousands and thousands of volunteers around the world he's never met. He has changed the lives of 40 million dogs and cats. and He did it with no money because he established a path and showed people a way to do it. Is that as profitable as running a subway? No, but it made more of a difference for people. So they need, if they don't have a purpose, then it's going to default to, if I'm just doing work, I might as well do it where I want, how I want, (laughs) when I want. So so you alluded to this, but I liked your definition in the book. I think it'd be helpful of industrial capitalism versus market capitalism. How do you view the, the difference? Yeah, there's been a lot of sloppy wordplay over the last five years about capitalism is inherently evil. Market capitalism is inherently empathic. Market capitalism is there's a problem in the market. I would offer to solve it if you will give me money. And when we see small businesses that are functioning well, or even medium-sized businesses, that's what they do. When a business grows to the scale to have monopoly power, They want to do the opposite of that. They want to capture the market. They want to charge rents to the market. They don't care what people want. They know they get to dictate the terms. And industrial capitalism says, we're not here to create any new value. We are not here to help people find meaning. We're here to run this machine faster and cheaper. And the machine includes the machine and includes the people in the machine. And they churn it and they churn it and they churn it. So when market capitalism shows up, it is dancing with change. It thinks change is okay because it's not trying to defend the Jacquard looms or the giant assembly line in Flint, Michigan. What it is doing is saying, oh, here's a new problem. Let me go solve that. And we don't have a better way to organize the world than democracy and market capitalism. However, those are two of the most difficult things to do. And they are fairly resilient if we take care of them. What happened was the shift 
in production, the race to the bottom enabled by the internet pushed industrial capitalism to the breaking point. And they had no choice but to uh, overclock their machines, including the people in on the factory floor. And that's why I don't remember the year that I quote in the book, maybe 2021, 30% of the people Amazon hired in 2021 quit their jobs within 90 days. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they were being brutalized. But it's not... It extends to information capitalism, too. I mean, what you just described to me is the last 10 years of the Silicon Valley free Mm -hmm. money chasing market share on not companies that make even make things, but just chasing market share at all costs. Right. The network effect is a version of monopoly. Right. The network effect is the coolest invention of the last 20 years, but it's been misused because if you come up with a great network effect, you can lock out your competition and then start increasing well, and for, and for every one business that has a network effect, 10 pretend they have a network effect right. in their business. Right. But that's what Andreessen and the others are chasing is this is a dumb investment unless the network effect happens and then it's a brilliant investment. Let's keep spinning the wheel for those. It feels like we also just need to look at like we, we've grown businesses by breaking people rather than growing businesses by growing the people along with it. My analogy is if I think about Silicon Valley in the last 10 years, if NASA said, we're putting the Seth Godin capsule on Mars and, and the capsule lands on Mars and all the astronauts are dead. I don't think everyone's going to celebrate on television and say that was, right. that operation was a huge success. So these, these companies get to these sort of hollow goals and all the people are killed along the way. And, and we celebrate that. Yeah. And, you know, when we think about, you know, I, I tell the story of Ray Anderson and interface carpet in the book, but when we think about the NASA uh, mission. The number of people who worked on the Apollo 11 mission is well into the six figures, maybe seven. And if you talk to those people, they will tell you it was the highlight of their life. Right. And m- all but three of them didn't actually go into space, right? So the contribution of solving an interesting problem through hard work is not something people want to avoid. It's something that they want, right? Even if it involves Death situations like World War II, the people who came back from World War II felt like they were doing something important. And the fact is that as more of our life is narrated through the filter of the fake libertarians in Silicon Valley, it's not getting better. It's because people are being treated like a resource, not like people. So on talking about important work, I I think you said the most significant work is high stakes and high trust. Can you give a kind of an example? What does that look like in practice? And what is it the opposite of? Okay, so high stakes is uh, I'm going to fly on an airplane somewhere. High stakes is someone's doing surgery. The difference between airplanes and surgery is that airplane pilots are surveilled from the beginning to the end. Every decision, every checklist. The kind of people who do that know what they're getting into and they tend to like it because they're not actually on the hook. Their job is to do something of high stakes and get status from it, but there's a routine. Whereas when you get heart surgery, nobody is watching the heart surgeon to make sure the heart surgeon's doing it the way that she said she was gonna do it. You trust this person to do their craft based on their training and their reputation. And high stakes, high trust work can also be a jazz quartet playing at Carnegie Hall. Because if they do great, they're the next Miles Davis or Paul Desmond or whatever. And if they don't, it's sort of embarrassing. 
but they're not going out there with memorized practice sheet music. They're trading fours because they trust each other. Yeah. The other parts of the quadrant, um, there's high stakes, low trust, which I told you about with the airplane pilot. Then there's low stakes, low trust, which is the mechanical Turk, which is Upwork, which is, I, it doesn't matter if it, this doesn't work because I'll just throw some more people at it. And then there's this huge opportunity in low stakes, high trust things, which makes us feel like people. When you go to a coffee shop, your favorite coffee shop, passing two Starbucks to get there, the reason you're going is not because you can, in a blind taste test, tell the difference, because you can't. You're going because a human being made you that coffee slightly differently than they made it last time, or greets you slightly differently than last time, or something happened that made both of you feel better. And this is the opposite of what McDonald's did for a very long time. If we look at sales and profit per location of of McDonald's versus Chick-fil-A, it's extraordinary. Because Chick-fil-A, the manager of a Chick-fil-A almost certainly began as the person who was sweeping the floor. And the manager now makes a quarter of a million dollars a year building a facility that has structure, but it doesn't have a script. And they are able to treat people differently. And that shift, uh, as we start to wrap this up, one story a friend told me, the difference between a Navy pilot and an Air Force pilot is that in the Air Force, they give you 12 volumes of things that you can't do. And in the Navy, they give you one volume of things that you can do. The point being that a Navy pilot figures it out and an Air Force pilot follows the rules. I'm not sure I want to get on a plane with a Navy pilot, but I do know that if you have an interesting problem to solve, you really want to put a Navy pilot on the job. Right. There's there's creative work and then there's work where you don't want a lot of deviation exactly. <laughs> from flight to flight. Uh, so and before we wrap it up, I'm curious, you know, you, we talked about this, but uh, one of your greatest skills I've heard you talk about is pattern matching, right? And particularly around trends. So we've seen this feverish spread of generative AI. You talked about sort of what the industrial revolution did to work. Are you seeing some similar <laughs> themes here? Well, uh, generative AI, just as a warning to people who might be listening, is going yeah. to create the worst deluge of spam, scams, and hustles we have seen in the history of humanity. It'll be an opportunity to be real, I've said to a lot of people, yeah. I mean, just, okay, here's 10,000 names. Go look up each person in LinkedIn, figure out where they went to college, figure out six other things where you can Semi-personal write. personal email. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, you never, you should never believe anything you hear, <laughs> see, that isn't with your own actual eyes, not through a lens, ever again. That 11 Labs has been trained in my voice, and my wife cannot tell it's not me talking. That's the level we are already after just six months. So with that said, either the bad actors are just going to rip our culture to shreds, or the good actors are going to show up to create a new form of connection. And it's not going to be the mass market-oriented connection of how do we get 10 million eyeballs on something. It's going to be the micro-market connection of what's the smallest viable audience? How do I assemble tribes of people who need to be connected with those they trust? How do I create a culture where side effects are seen as effects and that we're responsible for them because the race to the bottom is over and we have lost. You do not want to be on the race to the bottom. All right, Seth. Well, 
Thank you for joining us. You've been on my on my interview wish list for years. I'm glad we got to to make it happen. And and congrats on the uh, on the book launch today. Well, thank you. It's at seths.blog/song, and there's some videos and other stuff there. So I hope people can check it out. The reason I wrote it is so that people can share it with their coworkers and their boss. Books still help conversations happen. I'm not sure how long that's going to be true, but we still have time. I've heard you too. You took a break from books and now you're back to books. You're only when I have no choice. <laughs> only when I have no choice. All right, great. So where can they find, where's the best place to get the book again? Seths.blog slash song. All right, Seth, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Be well. Go make a ruckus. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Seth and Song of Significance, which you can buy wherever books are sold on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I greatly appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and hear from amazing guests such as Seth. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.